Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, hey, you know, developing mature leaders and godly men and women, this is a major goal of our church. And while there will be a variety of gifts and there'll be a variety of ways that we get involved in the kingdom of God, the scriptures make it clear that the gospel will manifest itself in a common way as it begins to mature us. In other words, there are certain characteristics that are common and universal to all believers as we begin to grow up in Jesus Christ. And so these question marks are a, a tool for us to self-assess the presence, the growth, and the progress of these common characteristics in our lives. Now the key word there was self-assess. It is a tool that we have designed for us to use really in, throughout our life in our personal worship, to, to get alone with God and to do a, a heart checkup, right? You know, and to pray and to work out our salvation in fear and trembling and to ask God, where am I in my worship or in my discipleship or in my service or evangelism and, and allow him to open our eyes to where we are progressing or where we need to be focusing attention. It's not meant for us to use them like binoculars and to examine other people. It's self-assessment, not other assessment. It's not meant for us to look at others and compare ourselves against other people and to either develop pride or perhaps self-condemnation. These question marks are for self-assessment. They're also a way for our leaders to begin with the end in mind. You ever heard that expression before? It's a, it's a common uh, concept, it's a, it's a valid concept in many areas of life, including the spiritual realm. In other words, if we say that spiritual development and leadership development, spiritual maturity are end goals of our ministry, then we have to ask the question, are we set up in our church to accomplish these goals? You know, do we have the ministries in place? Do we have the environments? Do we have the infrastructure and the offerings in place to equip you as participants in this ministry so that you actually grow up to maturity, to where you achieve your potential as men and women of God and as leaders of God? So this week, we are beginning a mess, series of messages that will take the entire month of March entitled, Our Common Pathway. Its purpose is to clarify and to present to all of us the common path that we believe uh, that we should follow in order for us to grow up in Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you have been a part of covenant for a while, this language of this pathway should look somewhat familiar. You know, for, for years, we have taught now for over 10 years that we are here at Covenant to develop followers of Christ who worship God passionately, connect with God's people, and impact God's kingdom. When we began our vision conversation back at the beginning of this ministry year, I told you that we were not throwing away and jettisoning all that we have done over the last 10 years, that that concept of worship-connected impact has established a DNA within our church. It's, it's who we are, and we are going to build off of that identity that we have as a church. And, and so this whole exercise isn't changing who we are. It is asking, what does God want us to do for the next 10 years now that we have a very clear sense of who we are as a church. The common pathway is language that many of you should recognize if you have joined our church in the last 10 years, because when you went through the membership classes and I explained to you and unpacked Worship Connect Impact, this was the labeling and the, the language that I gave you. So when we came to Connect, I talked about growing and when we came to Impact, I talked about serving inside the church. And, and then uh, Impact outside the church was reaching out to the lost. And so these are terms that are familiar to many of you. So this should is serve for most of us in here as a refresher for how do we grow and become mature. And the question marks is a tool that we as a church are employing so that we don't get down the road and, and assume that we're actually accomplishing the goals that we say we want to accomplish. Okay, does that kind of make sense of how these things interact with one another? The very, the very first question mark is an important one. When do I engage with God throughout the day and week? Our question marks start with worship. And it's kind of obvious from this uh, graphic behind me that worship has a prominent location. And our text this morning has Jesus in a conversation with a Samaritan woman about worship. Now, the conversation didn't start at worship. The conversation started with water, right? Jesus comes to this village in Samaria, and he asks this woman for a drink of water. And it proceeds from this request for water into a deeper conversation where Jesus offers her a water that will satisfy her deepest thirst. He has an evangelistic conversation where he's offering her salvation for her soul the deepest needs that she has in her life. And so this woman, as he, she listens to Jesus, finally says, give me, Rabbi, this water to drink. And Jesus turns to her and says, well, go and get your husband and bring him here, and I will give you this water to drink. And she says to Jesus, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, well, you have answered accurately. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're now shacking up with, that's in the Greek, is not your husband, right? And so in one of those classic understatements in the Bible that you find every now and then, the woman responds back to Jesus and says, Rabbi, 
I per- or, or sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She is very sharp, right? I mean, if, if, if somebody had told me knowledge about my life and only, you know, that you should never know, uh, I mean, I think I could put two and two together also. And, and on the heels of that statement, I perceive that you are a prophet, this woman asked Jesus a very important question that was in the minds of the Samaritan people. And it kicks off a conversation about worship. And that's where I wanna begin this morning. I wanna begin in verse 20 and make a pastoral observation. And then from there, we will jump into the text that Brian read from us for us. And I wanna make several gospel applications from the text. But let's start with verse 20 with a pastoral observation. It's profound. Worship can be very divisive. Well, that was profound, right? And they're like, like none of you knew that. <laughs> I mean, we've actually experienced a little bit of that in our church's history, painfully so, several years back. Worship can be a very divisive issue. Verse 20, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's she getting at here? Well, we need to understand a little bit about the Samaritans. The Samaritans came about several hundred years before. Israel had been divided into a northern and southern kingdom. In 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes in and they defeat the northern kingdom. They export most of the Jewish population throughout their kingdom, but they leave behind some Jewish people. And then they import Gentiles from across their kingdom into the region, and those imported Gentiles intermarry with the remaining Jews, and their offspring and descendants are known as the Samaritans. This is a huge violation of the law of Moses, right? Jews are not supposed to marry Gentiles. Later, about 150 years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is located, they're defeated by the Babylonians, right? They go into the Babylonian captivity. They're there for 70 years. They then return, and they begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the walls and the temple that had been totally destroyed. This is the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and several of the minor prophets, well, when the Jews began that effort to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans who had been living in the land for now more than a century, a century and a half, they make their way down to Jerusalem and they volunteer to help the Jews rebuild the temple. To which the Jews say, thanks, but no thank you. You may proceed back up north. You're unclean. We don't want your help. That began the troubles. So the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the area of Shechem. Shechem had a rich history in the Old Testament. It was the place where the tabernacle had initially existed. It was the place where Abraham and Jacob, and there was all kinds of rich heritage in this place. And the, the, the Samaritans, they took this very seriously. They worshiped there until around 150 BC. The Jews during the Maccabean uh, time came in and they destroyed their temple, raised it to the ground. 
And the Samaritans, of course, didn't take that very kindly. They continued to worship. They only recognized the law of Moses. They didn't recognize the rest of the prophets at all and the rest of the Old Testament. They were sincere. They were dedicated. They took their heritage seriously. And as a result, they and the Jews were at odds over the question of where to worship and how to worship. Folks, nothing has changed in over 2,000 years. Heritage and tradition form a person's perspective on what is the norm for how worship should be conducted. And then what happens is we project our norms onto one another and conflict then arises. So worship wars is a statement that has entered into the vocabulary of the church and oftentimes, worship wars are nothing more than the projection of tradition and heritage that we believe should be the norm for everyone, rather than being based in God's Word. Just a pastoral observation for us to keep in mind. Now, let's turn to the text, and let me give you several gospel applications. First of all, because of Jesus, the location of worship has been greatly simplified. Because of Jesus, the location of worship has been greatly simplified. Verse 21 says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You know, the temple had played an important role in the life of the Israelites for several hundred years. It was the location where the presence of God was. It was where the sacrificial system had taken place. It was where God had been showing the people the depth of their sin. And now it was showing them the need for their Messiah. And it was coming to an end. This historical argument that had existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jesus says, is now obsolete. Why? Because the hour has come. What hour? Jesus' hour. I had a conversation recently with a, a gentleman who was, who was fascinated with prophecy. And he's been digging into prophecy, and he was uh, talking to me about the future and how important it is that, that one day there be a temple rebuilt in the land of Israel because one day when Jesus returns, you know, there's going to be the rapture, and you know, the church is going to go to heaven for many years, and then Jesus will return and rule on earth for a thousand years, and there will be this time a thousand years in the temple in Jerusalem, and there will be the sacrifice, sacrifices of goats and bulls, and all of this will take place as Jesus rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years, and, and then the end will come, and all of this that was taking place. And I listened to him, and, and I said, and he asked me what I thought, which was a mistake. Because <laughs> if he hadn't asked what I thought, I would just nodded nicely. But he asked me what I thought, so it's fair game. And so I thought, I said, that sounds wonderful. I was raised in that system of belief. I learned under the professors who wrote those textbooks, and there's only one problem with it. None of it is biblical. Because Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says something very important. It says, the blood of bulls and goats do not 
provide the forgiveness of sins. Verses 9 and 10 say that Jesus came once and for all, and he ended the temple sacrificial system. That system, which was still underway at the time of the writing of Hebrews chapter 10, the author says it's obsolete. It is no longer in effect. It is absolutely no good to anyone anymore because Jesus has died once for all, and his blood has been shed, and the temple is done. We don't need that anymore. And it was never effective in the first place because the sacrifices had to be done over and over and over again. And what they did is they helped us to understand how guilty we were before God. But Jesus, he ended this temple because Jesus actually satisfied our sin problem with God. And in satisfying our sin problem with God, Jesus changed the location for where worship can take place. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, it goes on and says that not only did he satisfy our sin problem, he took the curtain of heaven and the holy of holies and he parted it so that now, anytime we want to, we can walk right into the holy of holies of God himself and we can talk and commune and worship with God. We don't have to go to a temple we don't have to wait to the Sabbath or Sunday, tomorrow morning in your cubicle at work. You can walk right to the curtains of God's throne room and worship. How cool is that? Jesus has made the location of worship. He's greatly simplified it. It's wherever we are. At any time of the day or night or any location, when we are prompted to talk and worship and adore and bring our burdens and our praises and our cares and our delights to our heavenly Father, we have instant access to the very throne room of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is why in our, in our pathway, worship is at the center of this path. Because worship is no longer something we do when we make a journey to a location every now and then. Worship is something that we do at any time, all throughout our life, all throughout the day, all throughout the week. Your job, your home, your neighborhood, your recreation, whatever it may be, it's all worship for God. Or it can be when we do it for the glory of God. Second application, worship is the fruit of God's sovereign, redemptive work in our lives. Verse 22 says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That expression, because the hour is coming and has now come, throughout the book of John, this is a term that was used for the cross. Jesus is saying, the cross is now here. My time to die is now here. What's his point? The point that Jesus is making is that God has been up to something. He has a redemptive plan at work. 
He has been seeking worshipers. He has been gathering to himself a people for one purpose, to worship him. You know, at our missions conferences, we often say that little statement that John Piper has made, that the reason missions exist is because worship does not. And it's getting at this idea that God has us doing missions and evangelism for a reason because he is gathering together his people and he's redeeming them for the purpose of being worshiped. You know, folks, all of us, humanity, we started out in the Garden of Eden as worshipers. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the scriptures say, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Those words, placed, tend, watch. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, these are the words used throughout the Old Testament that are priestly worship language. Like items are placed in the temple and are consecrated for God's use and for the worship of God in the temple. And in other words, humans were placed in the garden intentionally as priests to serve God, to worship Him in their service of God within creation. But sin ruined this. Sin ruined this priestly service where God would come in the cool of the evening and actually talk with our father and mother, Adam and Eve, at the end of the day after they had been serving God, doing their spiritual worship. But salvation restores us to this place. Every one of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior, we are worshiping priests. Peter points this out in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a what? Say it with me, royal priesthood. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what God is up to. Worship gathering people together. And if you're here this morning and you want to worship God, know that the path to worshiping God comes only through Jesus Christ because he met that appointed hour and went to the cross for our sins and died the death that we should have died. This makes the worship of God possible. When you appropriate the death of Jesus for yourself and you trust in him, this begins your life of worshiping God. Third application. True worship, the heart of true worship, true worship is a spiritual heart response to God. True worship is a spiritual heart response to God. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the third must statement that Jesus makes in the book of John. In John chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus says, you must be born again. In verse 14 of John 3, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him can have everlasting life. And now in chapter 4, verse 24, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. 
Now, everybody who follows Christ, who has the Holy Spirit residing within him or her, is compelled to worship. We know that this is true. We know it by experience. We are compelled to worship God. Where we get hung up is on the the how and the what of worship behind that little phrase, in spirit and truth. What does Jesus mean by that? Um, you know, Dr. Dr. Alistair um, Begg was, was speaking on worship to a group of pastors. And he pointed out that the Samaritans, they were, they were dedicated, they were excited, they were enthusiastic, they were very sincere in their worship of God, but they were sincerely wrong. <laughs> they were sincerely wrong. To cut out all of the Old Testament except for the first five books of the Bible. He said, and then, and then the Jews in Jerusalem, as Jesus points out, they had it right doctrinally. They had the truth, and they had the temple set up, and they had the procedures going on right, but they were going through the motions of worship. So with the one group, the Samaritans, he said, you know, you had a, basically you had a carnival. <laughs> and the other group, you had basically a crematorium. <laughs> And those two extremes still exist in the church today, right? You go to some churches, and churches are full of enthusiasm and excitement. The show is great, and everyone shows up to watch the show. And the show is all about those who show up to watch the show, right? Or churches have truth. And they have the Word of God being taught. It's not shallow. It's not a, a motivational message and self-help. And, all, but, and they have their, their way of doing church, but it's dead. Now, people just show up and they go through the process of worship and they go through the steps, but there's no life change. There's no spirit and enthusiasm about worship. We don't understand what it means to worship in spirit and truth. So let's unpack this. Let's start with the idea of spirit. That's the how part. God is spirit. This drives the passage. God is spirit. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. God is the audience of worship. God is the spectator. Churches are filled with people who spectate at worship. The only spectator in true worship is God. I, I think it would really help us when we come together in corporate worship. It would be so helpful. Maybe it would help us if we would just envision God. It would help us if God was sitting, to envision God sitting up on this stage on a throne, watching. I wonder how that would change our worship on Sunday morning. Would we sing differently if God were sitting up on this stage on a throne, watching us? Would you have sung differently this morning? When we pray corporately together, would we actually pray 
more fervently. Maybe our minds wouldn't wander. Would we be active listeners during the message? Perhaps we would have even, our thought, have said amen by this point in the sermon. Thank you. She's always good for an amen or two in the sermon. So thank you. Uh, you know, I, I just wonder, would we, would, hey, would we, would we go to bed earlier on Saturday night? Would we prepare differently for church on Sunday if we knew that God was going to be sitting up here on the stage watching us worship? Would it, would, it, would it change how we lived Monday to Saturday? Do you think we would actually worship Monday to Saturday in our own private life and quiet time if we knew that God was going to be sitting on the stage Sunday morning watching us worship? Do you think it would change us, church? Of course it would! But church, that's exactly what's taking place. God is everywhere. He's spirit. He's the audience. So let me ask you a question. How's your participation in worship? How is it? God is spirit. He's a spirit being. He's not physical. So worship, while it involves our physical bodies, and it takes place in time and space, primarily it is a spiritual act. He's spirit, so we worship him in spirit. In other words, true worship comes from the heart. It engages our inner being and our heart. It's an expression. It is an overflow of the inner man, of the inner being, and of our heart towards God for who he is and for everything that he has done. This is what makes it a spiritual activity. Worship is not primarily a physical ritual. Worship is primarily a sincere reflection of an inner reality. And anything other than that, God despises. God despises worship that is not spiritual and sincere. He says in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 29, these people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Through the prophet Samuel has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, you go through all of your rituals of worship. You do everything that you're supposed to do by the letter of worship, but none of it's sincere because you don't obey me throughout the week. So it's not worship. It's just an act that you're putting on. It's not spiritual. It's just a physical thing that you're doing. Real worship is a spiritual response of the heart. And it's not bound by location because God is spirit. He's everywhere. And it takes place throughout the week. And it's characterized by obedience and following him and glorifying him. It's a heart attitude. The sacrifices of God, the psalmist says, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
The beauty of true worship being a spiritual heart response is that our heart, the only way this happens is because our heart has been brought alive by the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity who now lives inside of us. So when we worship from our heart, this is what's happening. God, the Holy Spirit, He energizes us and He directs our praise and He directs us to praise and to glorify God the Father and God the Son. That's what's happening in real worship. And, and when this happens through the Holy Spirit's guidance and power, what's happening here is we are joining in with the worship and in with the adoration of the one another that has been taking place within the Godhead for all of eternity. That's why worship is so important. It's, it's why this is what we were created to do. When we're created in the image of God and we're created to worship because this is what the Godhead has been doing for all of eternity. They have been adoring one another. And so when we are adoring God, we are joining in through God in us with what they have been doing for all of eternity. Do you see the significance of worship? And why true worship has to come from the heart that has been energized by God. Final application. We've seen worship in spirit. How about the truth part? Let's end on that. True worship is centered on Jesus, for he embodies God's truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is who, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, he will tell us the truth. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I just think it's fascinating that all these people who wanted to know from Jesus whether he was the Messiah, and Jesus reveals it to a despised Samaritan woman who is living in adultery with a man who is not her husband. Isn't that cool? I who speak to you am he. I am the truth, he says. To his disciples, a little bit later he will tell them to comfort them. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that when I come, you may be also. And how do you know the way? Because I am the way. The what? Truth. The life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 of Hebrews says, God in former days, he spoke to us, he revealed the truth through prophets, but now in these times, he has spoken to us and revealed the truth through his son, Jesus. He is the perfect embodiment of truth. Jesus is truth. Biblical worship, Bob Coughlin has written, is God's covenantal people recognizing, reveling in, and responding rightly to the glory of God in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. What that means is that this week, when we go to work, when we talk to the waitress in the restaurant, 
when we coach the little league team, or we sit in the stands and we cheer for our child, or we go over to our neighbor and we talk to them as they're doing yard work, or we draw the water and we give our children a bath, or we sit down at a meal with our spouse or a friend, whatever we do throughout our week, we have the opportunity to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ to everyone that we interact with. When we do this, these are spiritual acts of worship because we're bringing Jesus, truth of God himself, to people who need him. This is the highest form of everyday worship we can have. We can worship God as engineers, teachers, doctors, lawyers, housewives, retirees, whatever our vocation may be. We can do it all week long. And by doing it all week long, the nice thing is, is when we come together corporately, it makes this time even sweeter. This becomes the icing on the worship cake. If this is the only time we worship, it won't be satisfying. It won't be satisfying. But when this is the icing on the worship cake, oh my, you get a little taste of what heaven can be as we come together and we worship God together. Recently, uh, I had a membership class. On Saturday morning, we were talking about worship, and I gave the class an assignment. I'd never done this before, but I'm going to do it from now on. I, I asked the class, I said, listen, tomorrow in church, I said, I want you to watch really close in the service, and I want you to identify in the church service where the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented. And I want you to write that down, and tomorrow night when we reconvene, I want you to tell the class where the gospel was at in the service. When we came back together on Sunday night, it was really interesting. The first person identified one of the songs. I said, man, these lyrics right here, this song was full of the gospel. I said, man, great, good job. Next person said, well, the gospel was in this song, and it was a totally different song, and we started laughing. And we said, well, who's right? And we all agreed they were both right. A third person said, it's interesting. It wasn't the songs that stood out to me. It was the prayer that we did from the Psalms that that Paxson had us do that, that, that unison prayer that we did together, and he pulled it from Psalm 107 or whatever it was, and he says, man, the gospel was all through that prayer. And it just really spoke to me. I was so moved. I said, right. I said, anybody else? And thankfully, somebody finally said, yeah, your sermon was full of the gospel. I said, good. You know, that's good. <laughs> I said, right. I said, what's the point? I said, the point is, everything we do in here, we want to be about Jesus. Lifting up Jesus, because he's truth. He's truth. And we worship Jesus. And when we worship Jesus, we are worshiping God in truth. Paul says this about us, church. He identifies us, and I'll close with this. He says, we are the circumcision. We are the people of God. And how does he identify us? He says, we are the people of God who worship by the Spirit of God. And what do we do in our worship? We glory 
in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What a great description of worship and why we worship. Heavenly Father, would you make us a people who worship you in spirit and truth? Lord Jesus, may you fill our hearts so full of love for you and gratitude for you and what you've done for us in Jesus, that we are compelled to be ambassadors who tell the good things to our children, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our spouses, to one another. When we meet together in small group, may we worship you by testifying of your goodness. Lord, may we, may we walk this week in the Holy of Holies. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for opening up that curtain and through your blood giving us the privilege of meeting with our Heavenly Father. Oh Lord, that could never have happened if you didn't worship and obey and give your life for us. We thank you, we worship you for your obedience to the cross. Form us into the people that you want us to be. A people that are filled with humility and grace, power and truth. For your glory, I ask these things, Jesus. Amen.